went out from Jerusalem. God's church is for all, Jew and Gentile. God doesn't play favourites. Now today we pick things up in Acts chapter 10. Uh, Acts is the, the record of Luke's record of the early church, the history of the early church. And so Acts chapter 10, it's a significant moment, not only for Peter, but also for the early church. In many ways, it's a turning point. I reckon it's like, um, it's, I reckon it's the I am your father scene of Acts. You remember in Star Wars, that scene, when, when Luke finally finds out that, that Darth Vader is his father. I think it's Empire Strikes Back. It's, he goes, I am your father, and the best impersonation I can do. It changes everything, doesn't it? If you're a Star Wars fan, even if you're not, trust me, it does. It changes everything of how the story goes and the, this history of Star Wars the story takes a significant turn. Now, in Acts chapter 10, that's what's happening here in the early church. The Gentiles, that means the non-Jews, the Gentiles, through the conversion of this Roman centurion, Cornelius, and his family, are now welcomed into the church, the, the broad church, although it's made a bit more official in Acts chapter 15 in the Council of Jerusalem. You can read that later on if you like. It should come as no surprise, though, to us, this, because this was part of God's plan of salvation. And it goes right back to Abraham, the promises given to Abraham, that through his descendants, the nations would be blessed, that anyone from any nation can be in God's family. So in Acts chapter 10, well, it's, not only the, it's actually not only the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham that go right back to Genesis chapter 12, but what we see as well, it's the fulfillment of Jesus' words, his last words to the apostles before he's ascended into heaven. So in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says to the apostles, just before he sends them out, he says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and at the ends of the earth, further and further out. The gospel wasn't just for Jerusalem, it wasn't just for Israel, it was for the whole earth, all the people. And the apostles, such as our friend Peter we've been getting to know, would be the ones sent, that's what apostle means, sent by Jesus to witness to this gospel, to preach this word. So, have your Bible open. Make sure you check what I'm saying and uh, have it to Acts chapter 10. There's an outline there as well. The plan today is to, to make some general comments about what happens in Joppa and then what happens in Caesarea. And that's the first four points of the outline and then focus on some points of application. Okay? So point number one in your outline says two significant visions. Verses 1 to 16. First we meet Cornelius. Now Cornelius, uh, we're told, he's a... Um, uh, he's God-fearing God and devout. Actually, he's a little like Job in the Old Testament, and he's described as righteous like Job. Now, what that means is that he, he practiced the Jewish religion. That's what it means, and he was good at it. He did the right things at the right time. He ticked those boxes. He was religious in that way, and he believed in God. He was God-fearing, which means he respected and honoured and, and worshipped God. Evidence for Cornelius' devotion was his gifts to the poor, we read. It's actually really the Jewish poor. It's literally the people. Uh, and, and he also prayed regularly. He was an example to others, so much so that in the Jewish community, um, uh, his whole family believed like him. 
Well, we immediately see God's sovereign guidance at play. God speaks to Cornelius through an angel. Angel just means messenger. And the message is to send men to Joppa to bring back Peter the Apostle. Now, I think I've on the next slide. I'll just go forward for a minute. Uh, where is it? There it is. So there's, there's Caesarea and there's Joppa. It's about 50 k's um, between those two places. And you can see down the bottom a few places you've heard of, uh, Jerusalem and um, obviously the Mediterranean there. So we'll go back a couple slides there. Okay. So that was the message uh, to, uh, where am I, to bring men um, uh, to gather these guys together and then bring them to Caesarea. Still trying to find my place in my notes. Come on, Graham, you can find it, please. There we go. Good, good. Now, Cornelius, okay, got it. Cornelius, <laughs> he doesn't delay. He uh, acts immediately. They get the men together and they head down to Joppa and they, they meet Peter. We're actually not told until verse 30 uh, why Peter needs to, to come to Caesarea uh, to see Cornelius and his family. Perhaps Luke wants to build up the tension a little bit, build up a bit of drama. Peter's vision is next. The vision he sees portrays something that Jesus actually had already taught in Mark chapter 7. That is, what makes someone clean and unclean is not what's on the outside but it's what's on the inside that makes them clean and unclean. It's their heart. Now, in the Old Testament, there were what's called clean and unclean requirements, often associated with what they could eat and what they could not eat. And they see, what Peter sees in his vision is things that were unclean. Both these requirements, uh, uh, sorry, I should say, but these requirements were, were temporary they weren't meant to last, and they were designed to keep Israel as a holy and distinct people, separate from the nations, the Gentiles, until the time came when Jews and Gentiles could receive forgiveness of sins on the same basis, that is, through faith in Jesus. Now, Paul, in Ephesians 2, 15 to 16, speaks of this, and he writes of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, which is actually expressed in the law, the commands and regulations, he calls them. Paul says that wall was broken down when Jesus died on the cross for us, making it possible for Jews and Gentiles to be made right with God and reconciled with God on the same basis, joined together in a common faith. So back to the vision again that Peter sees. In the vision, God directs Peter to, what does he say? He says, get up kill and eat. It's pretty gruesome, really. And not to call anything impure that God has made clean. It's God who determines what is clean. And when Peter arrives at Cornelius's house, well, it seems he hasn't missed the meaning of the vision. And have a look down at verse 28. He says to them as he arrives at the house, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. That's that dividing wall of hostility. Jews don't hang around with Gentiles. They're unclean. You don't go to their house and share a meal together. But look at the next little sentence there in verse 28. But God. Whenever you see a but God, you should wake up and go, oh, but God. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. You see what God's doing? God is redefining the boundaries for the gospel era. He's breaking down that wall. 
between Jew and Gentile. Okay, well next there's two significant journeys begin. That's why I've got the map there, you can see them. In both of these journeys, Cornelius' men to Joppa and then Peter back to Caesarea. Obedience to God's word is central in the story. Although it's just an interesting side note as well, and uh, Ian Field uh, 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 alerted me to this the other night. Um, It wouldn't have been hard for Peter to be found in Joppa. You know, he was staying at Simon the Tanner's place. A tannery would have stunk. Remember, tanneries work with hides and dead animals. It would not have been hard at all. Uh, so that's why they found him so easy, Simon the Tanner. Um, it's uh, interesting too, and maybe, just maybe, God was preparing Peter for what was to come next by staying at this Tanner's house uh, because a tannery would have, would have been unclean, wouldn't it? All these dead animals and guts and blood and all the rest floating around would have stunk and would have been very much seen as unclean. Maybe God was preparing him. Anyway... Both these journeys also tell of God's control of the situation. Clearly, Peter and Cornelius were not in control of things. Uh, Neither of them seem to have much clue at all about why they're meeting each other or why God is bringing them together. In verse 25 and 26, uh, Cornelius has great regard for Peter. He's probably heard of Peter, but he's obviously alerted to in a vision. He he falls at Peter's feet. Uh, Sorry, yes, Cornelius falls at Peter's feet. But in true um, blunt Peter, the blunt fisherman, he, it's almost like he, you know, he says, what are you doing? Get up! I'm just a man like you! What are you doing falling at your feet? You see, in God's church, none of us are more important than the other. So things are starting to click for Peter, aren't they? But he still has one important question left, and it's the end of verse 29. If you've got your Bibles, have a look at it. Very politely, Peter asks, why have you sent for me? In other words, what am I doing here? <laughs> what am I doing here? Why have you sent for me? Well, Cornelius answers in verse 30 onwards. He shares about the vision that he's seen. He explains the re- his reasoning for Peter's visit, uh, which is obedience to God uh, through his vision. And now he waits in anticipation of how Peter will respond. He won't be disappointed. Peter preaches the gospel and the Gentiles receive it in faith. Now, unlike me today, uh, Peter had no prepared sermon. But you wouldn't say he was winging it, not at all. He was ready to preach the gospel. He simply shared the gospel, what he has witnessed. Let's have a a look what he says. Have a look at um, chapter 10, verse 34. Let's read a bit of what he says. So verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under, God, under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Uh, we'll stop there. You notice what he does? It's a great illustration for us of how we explain the gospel. 
This is what he does. He starts with the promise to Israel, as set out in the Old Testament, and then he, uh, then the events of Jesus' life, and from baptism to his death and resurrection, and then finally a call to faith and repentance in verses forty-two to forty-three. So have a look at verse forty-two. Uh, he commanded us to preach, this is he, us as the apostles, us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Not a bad uh, description of the gospel, is it? Not a bad way to do it. What's striking too is that Peter describes this gospel as one being sent and preached to Israel. In verse 36, you see, no Jew would have doubted that the promises of God to his people could be fully accepted by Gentiles if those Gentiles became Jews in the full ritual way, joining the people of Israel. Remember Ruth, that's what Ruth did. And even as we read here in this context, many Christian Jews at this time believed that Gentiles could be saved in this way. That's what we read in Acts 15. But now... But now, God showed Peter that his acceptance, God's acceptance of the Gentiles, did not rest on any external rule or right or race or whatever, but on their repentance and faith. They were justified by faith. Now, the gospel remained in the context of Israel. You see, as Peter even put it, God's promises through Israel, salvation through Israel's Messiah, in that context but the heart of being saved the heart of becoming a christian forgiveness of our sin comes through faith in the preached message of the gospel not through becoming an israelite so just like in acts chapter 2 when the holy spirit authenticated believers in in jerusalem at pentecost uh, through the speaking speaking in tongues here in Acts chapter 10, well, what we've got is the Gentile Pentecost. The Holy Spirit uh, authenticates these Gentiles as they believe, as the Gentiles responded in faith to the preaching of the gospel as they believed and were converted. The Holy Spirit authenticated these Gentile believers. They too are children of God. Therefore, Peter says in verses 47 to 38, they too, like any other believer, should be baptised symbolising that they too are cleansed, are washed clean. See, baptism wasn't necessary for Cornelius' salvation. He's already saved at this point. But Peter wanted to make clear that Cornelius and his family were not inferior in any way and they too were part of God's church. That's what baptism is. It's telling us, it's a symbol saying they too are part of God's church. All right, a lot in that, isn't there? A lot to think about and concentrate on. Well, Peter then uh, heads back to Jerusalem in, in chapter 11, 1 to 18. I think when it, when it says he heads back to Jerusalem, it's really implied that he probably met with the early church leadership, but other Jewish believers. But he cops a bit of flack, doesn't he, from these Jewish believers for hanging out with Gentiles. You can't hang out with Gentiles. They're unclean. Can't do that. You're associating with the unclean. Well, then Peter then tells the whole story. He recounts the whole story. The visions, the work of the Spirit, and his reasons for baptising Cornelius. And when he gets to verse 18, well, it's wonderful. They're convinced. Uh, they accept God's verdict, 
And they praise him, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's go into the story. Let's make a couple points of application, first up. Well, the first thing I want to say here is that religion, or being devout, doesn't cut it. Religion, or being devout, doesn't cut it with God. We must respond with repentance and faith to the gospel. Uh, back in 2004, uh, which when I read that, well, wrote that down in my notes, I thought, gee, that's a long time ago. And it is, it's 14 years ago, my goodness. It doesn't feel like that. Anyway, back in 2004, I worked in a church um, alongside uh, this woman. Uh, she was on staff. I think she was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, let me tell you why. I can't actually remember speaking to her about Acts chapter 10, but many other conversations we had. One time at a staff meeting, we were reading John 14 verse 6, doing a study on John 14. John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, Jesus' words seem very, very clear to, to, to me and most other people. Uh, he's the only way to know God. He's the only way to get into heaven. Trust, you put your trust in Jesus. If you don't do that, you're not going to heaven. Well, she responded by saying, well, I just can't believe that a devout Muslim will not go to heaven. Uh, it's a lovely, inclusive sentiment, isn't it? It's, it's, it's that sort of sentiment. It's, it's very inclusive, and it's one that we may well hear in our churches. Sorry, we may well hear in our society today. But it's a false gospel, and it's not what Jesus says, and it's not what his apostles preached. It's not what Peter says here today. You see, Cornelius was devout. He was a devout man. He was a God-fearing man, but he hadn't heard the gospel. He hadn't heard the good news about Jesus. And so he needed to repent. He needed to believe in Jesus, and that's what he did. And only then did God save him. Only then did God give him the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. Friends, um, we live in a world today that doesn't care much for truth. Truth is defined as, well, that's your truth, not mine, so shut up. <laughs> it's, truth is not absolute. I don't know if you saw in the news during the week. It's only very recent, so you mightn't have seen it. A, a young American man was on a train in Sydney, um, and he decided all of a sudden to try to share the, the gospel. He tried to share the message of Jesus to everyone on the train. He just stood up, a packed train, and just started talking. Um, uh, it was interesting. Um, I don't think it's the best way to go about it. I appreciate his, his boldness, um, but it comes to mind, I must admit, that uh, with, did he share the gospel with gentleness and respect? In 1 Peter 3.18, remember that? Be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I'm not quite sure he did, because he offended a lot of people. The way he did it, the way he kept talking and shouting at people. But one of the guys, this old guy who was, he just wanted to read his book on the train, the poor fella. Um, but he was sitting on the side there. This guy was standing over him and just shouting at him about Jesus. And it really didn't come across very well for Christians at all. But he said, said, shouted back to him, well, that's your truth, not mine, so shut up. In fact, there was a particular word in there that I'm not going to mention in church. Uh, you might want to guess what it is. Um, he was pretty cranky, and a lot of other people are cranky. He managed to offend probably everyone. But his, this, this, this older guy's response I thought was fascinating. That's your truth, not mine. That's the world we live in. Put aside the, 
the, the strategy this young man uh, shared the gospel with, put aside that for a minute. That man's answer is telling, isn't it? That's your truth, that's not mine. Um, the temptation for us is to fall into this trap, thinking that perhaps the gospel is just one of many truths. We mustn't do that, friends. Um, as, long as, you know, as long as you're devout, then God will accept you. That, that's what we hear. Acts 10 says otherwise. We need to repent and have faith in Jesus. Only Jesus. Acts 10 also reminds us of the need to share this truth, doesn't it? God uses us to do that, to share that gospel. Acts 10 also teaches us of the power of that gospel to save. Just a chapter back in chapter 9, we read the story of, um, we didn't today, but um, I didn't want to make it too long a reading. Um, <laughs> but you might remember the story of, of Paul, or Saul, being converted, changed his name to Paul. Uh, Paul was a Jew, pretty high up too. He was a scholar and he was a bigot, wasn't he? Right definition of the word. Cornelius was a Gentile, a soldier, and he was a seeker. Yet both were converted by the gracious initiative of God, weren't they? Both received forgiveness of sins, both received the gift of the Holy Spirit, both were baptised and welcomed into God's church on equal terms. See, both point us to the power and the impartiality of the gospel of Jesus. You hear that? God doesn't play favourites. God doesn't play favourites. And that, in many ways, is the fundamental emphasis of the Cornelius story. That God does not make distinctions in his church, and we shouldn't either. All are equal. Favouritism is not our lot. Now, the church has struggled with this. The history of the Christian church, we haven't always got this right. Uh, history has shown discrimination has crept into churches in forms of, of racism, um, nationalism, uh, tribalism, uh, the caste system in some countries, or we might just, you know, social and cult cultural snobbery. That's, that's, that probably affects us more. A sexism, we probably could go on. God hates it. God hates it. Friends, God can change anyone's heart, whatever the background, whatever you've done, God can save. God doesn't discriminate in his church and nor should we. How about we pray and then we, uh, we've got a few moments to ask any questions or make a comment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus came to this earth as, a, as a God in the flesh to die for us, to deal with the problem that we have with our sin. Lord, we pray that in response that we would indeed repent and, have, and put our faith in you. Lord, we're sorry as a church that we haven't always got it right, uh, that we sometimes have played favourites. Lord, please forgive us. We pray as a church that we would continue... Um, to welcome all, no matter what their background, no matter what their, their race or skin colour or whatever it might be, uh, Lord, we pray that that would be us, we'd be welcoming. Um, and Lord, we thank you for your word today. Help us to put your words into practice. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In, in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Got a few moments. <laughs>